0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports and we interview the author of that book. This week's guest is Guy Fraser-Sampson, Senior Fellow at Cass Business School in London. We are discussing his book, Cricket at the Crossroads, Class, Color, and Controversy, from 1967 to 1977, published by Elliot and Thompson in 2011. The 1960s were a time of dramatic social and cultural change around the world. The unrest of the 60s often spilled into sports, including that most traditional of sports, cricket. In English cricket, the decade began with the stated end of the class distinction between amateurs and professionals, and it ended with the controversy surrounding the selection of Basil D'Oliveira to the England team, an episode that led to apartheid South Africa's complete exclusion from international sports. In his book, Guy Fraser Sampson describes how these tensions over class and race played out in English cricket. He carries the story forward to the mid-1970s when Australian media tycoon Kerry Packer formed his made-for-TV breakaway competition, World Series Cricket. As we learn in the interview, Packer's immediate success in luring players to his venture was largely a result of the low pay that cricketers endured at the time, as well as the failure of the sport's governing bodies in managing cricket. And Guy also makes the case that the main threat to the sport was not Kerry Packer and his millions, but the decisions of captains, umpires, and administrators who allowed aggressive bowling to take over the game in the early 1970s, leaving players bruised and broken. This is a key period in the contemporary history of cricket, and Guy presents the story with a lively and accomplished style. As an American, and thus a novice to cricket, I found the book to be an engaging and enjoyable read. Certainly true fans of the sport will find much to appreciate in it. So let's turn to my interview with Guy. My guest this week on New Books and Sports is Guy Fraser-Sampson. Guy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. Nice to be here. So you are trained in law, but your career has been in investment management. Uh, you've written several books and articles on investing in finance. Uh, you also teach at uh, Cass Business School in London. You regularly speak at conferences on matters of business and finance and still you regularly write history as well as fiction so uh, what brings you back to to researching and writing history and fiction
1: well i think they've always been the great loves of my life they were always my favorite subjects at school and i'm a firm believer in the principle that you can't really understand any subject simply by studying that subject alone uh, and I think a number of my books demonstrate that. They seem to wander off into all sorts of different areas.
0: <laughs> so I'll cite you next week when I, when I teach my history classes, and I have, have students, many business students, and it's, it's hard to compel them to, uh, to study history. Well, I've just
1: written a book, if you'll forgive a shameless plug, I've just written a book called The Mess We're In, uh, Why Politicians Can't Fix Financial Crises. And although it's aimed at very much at
0: business student type people, it's largely a history book. So what led you to write this particular book on this decade of English cricket? It's always been a decade
1: of cricket which fascinated me because it was the first uh, period of cricket that I can remember. I started uh, following cricket myself in about 1967, 1968. And I was discussing with the publisher, Laurence Forsyth, uh, possible topics for a book. And it turned out it was one of his favorite periods of cricket as well. And so I think the book was born then. And it was really then just the idea of the hook into the sort of social and political. Conditions uh, in Britain at the time, and using cricket almost as a as a backdrop or 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 a prop for that, that I think was then I found very exciting.
0: So, were these your uh, your cricket heroes when when you were first watching the game, who were playing during this period? Then, yes, very much so. Uh, and in fact, one of the. Very poignant
1: things about writing the book and researching the book was that the more I did research, and I'm very grateful to people like the MCC for opening their archives to me, the more it seemed that actually some of my boyhood heroes had very much feet of clay. Mm
0: -hmm. I was going to ask that as the (laughs) follow-up. Were you surprised or shocked by what you uncovered?
1: Yes, uh, my boyhood hero, as I suspect most people who watched at that time was Colin Cowdery. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as you'll know, from reading the book, he emerges very much as a rather flawed individual.
0: So let's turn to the book. And uh, as you said, you were interested in this period as a a fan of cricket, but you were interested in then connecting it to the larger uh, social and political context. And in one of the early chapters, you you set this larger context. And not surprisingly, given your background, you write about the economic context. And so I'll start by asking this. How did the, the economic situation in 1960s, early 1970s Britain affect English cricket?
1: It didn't affect it directly. It affected those who played it because what happened in Britain at that time was we had a period of very high inflation retail prices trebled in just over 10 years. And people like professional cricketers who did not really have a trade union to protect their position became very much poorer in real terms because their pay did not in any way keep up with rising prices. And what really brought that about was an explosion in consumer credit in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, You know, a lot of people who haven't grown up in Britain, for example, may not be aware that we still had rationing, wartime rationing, well into the 1950s. And so there was this terrible period of austerity that suddenly came to an end, and government thought it would be a very popular thing to do to unleash this tidal wave of credit. And of course, the results in terms of things like inflation were inevitable.
0: So something else I found interesting in this chapter is uh, that you discuss television as both a mirror and an instrument of social change. So uh, can you talk about that, of how you view television and then its significance to, to cricket?
1: Yes, its significance as, if you like, a mirror of social change was that until commercial television started in Britain, which wasn't on any widespread scale until sort of the very early 1960s, people who lived, for example, in London... Really had no idea that there were people who lived in other parts of the country who spoke in a very different way and had a very different popular culture. So it was very much an eye-opening experience, I think, for people in different parts of the country to realise for the first time just how diverse Britain was as a country. Far more diverse, perhaps, than any other country, I think, certainly any other country that I've been to. uh, The way that you have almost different dialects being spoken just a short distance away from each other, that doesn't really happen to the same extent, even in somewhere like Italy. So it was very much a mirror of social change. And at the same time, you had the established, if you like, BBC type television personalities being challenged by and giving way to on commercial television. People from really much more ordinary origins, a lot of the comedians and the actors in the soap for example uh, were all of working class origin and many of them either from London or the north of England so it was very much an instrument of social change as far as cricket was concerned it was very much the financial savior because attendance at cricket matches had been declining rapidly there were all sorts of reasons for that
0: so something that you mentioned at at uh, the start of your answer about londoners discovering through television that there was uh, that there were other parts of britain one other tension or part of the background you discuss is this this north south divide and this does play out directly in cricket
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's not just a a geographical divide, it's also very much a social divide. So yes, on the one hand, players from southern counties, the most obvious ones being places like Middlesex and Essex, uh, were definitely favoured, perhaps unfairly, over players from northern counties. But much more than that, there was the class system, Mm -hmm. which in the 1960s and into the 70s was still immensely strong in Britain. And there was very much this idea of just as you, you shouldn't be an officer in the army unless you were from some sort of good middle class or upper class family, that the same thing should happen in cricket, that leadership was somehow an, an inbred characteristic <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that the patricians had, but the plebeians didn't. Um, and hence the tension at the very beginning of the book, when we find that very much against their will, the cricket authorities have been more or less forced into appointing somebody as captain of England, who is not only a northerner, but is also a working class professional. Mm-hmm.
0: And before we talk about that specific episode, I was going to ask about class. And and in, in the opening part of the book, you set out quite starkly how rigid and discriminatory this divide was between amateur and professional cricketers, between gentlemen and players. And it still existed in late 1960s England.
1: Yes, it did. Uh, Although it was formally abolished in about 1963, the idea of gentlemen and players really persisted in the sense that people who'd played as gentlemen, as amateurs, didn't finally pass out of the game until the late 1970s. For example, Mike Brearley was the last person to Captain England who had originally played as an amateur under the old regime. And it was very powerful indeed. People had their names written differently on the scorecard. They stayed in different accommodation when they went on tour. They were addressed differently. They had to address each other differently. It was a very real divide.
0: So then the the first episode in which you... uh... Uh, Have an instance of a captain being selected who goes uh, really against this class divide is uh, the brief captaincy of Brian Close in in 1967, which was successful in terms of results, but still resulted in Close being sacked. So can you talk about the Close affair and, and then how it fits into this larger social context?
1: Yes, prior to Brian Close, there had been a succession of England captains who all very fit, all very much fitted the mould of what you might call the officer and a gentleman. They'd all been to boarding school, they'd all been to Oxford and Cambridge. So the captaincy rotated between people like David Shepherd, uh, Ted Dexter, Mike Smith, Colin Cowdrey. But in 1966, they ran into a problem because England came up against a very powerful West Indian side, and they were completely blown away. Uh, And first Mike Smith and then Colin Cowdery were tried with the captaincy and failed. And so I think, perhaps thinking that it was in some sense a poison chalice, it was given to Brian Close for the very last Test match of that year. And perhaps against the expectations of the establishment, he inspired the England side to a remarkable fight back and they won that match. So it then really wasn't possible to take the captaincy away from him for the following season. But there was... A feeling throughout, I think, in many quarters that he was very much a stopgap captain. Certainly in interviewing him today, uh, he says that that was his feeling at the time. And that he was warned by a very prominent sporting journalist that there was a conspiracy to get rid of him within the establishment. Uh, And in fact, some of the research which I did certainly supports that view. Uh, we now know, for example, that even before the infamous game, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, which was the peg on which his dismissal was hung, even before that game happened, the MCC, the cricket establishment, had in fact already approached somebody else uh, to ask if they would captain the side, the touring side to the West Indies that winter.
0: Mm-hmm. So then I'll ask you to talk about that specific specific game. Yes, what happened in those days
1: uh, was different to what happens today in that on the last uh, day of the match, in the last session of the match, there was no requirement to bowl a minimum number of overs. And that meant that sides could and did time waste. So if you were faced with a potential losing position and you could try and drag the game out into a draw, then there were all sorts of things you could do to slow down the passage of play. And everybody did it. And in this particular match where Yorkshire were playing Warwickshire, it was common ground that Yorkshire did this. But the important thing was that nobody made any formal complaint about it. And that actually, if you speak to some of the players who were involved in that match, or in respect of some of those who've sadly died since, if you read their memoirs, they're all pretty much agreed that what happened was no different to what happened in any other match at the time. But despite all of that, the MCC convened a disciplinary committee. They summoned Brian Close, who'd been captaining Yorkshire, and they censured him. They said that what had happened was not in the spirit of the game. And what then happened was, despite that vote of censure, the England selectors went on and chose him to captain the England side to the West Indies. And that's where things start to get rather murky, because what then happened was an emergency meeting was called of the full MCC committee, and they effectively overturned the decision of the selection committee. And the way in which that was done was really rather shabby there had been an allegation in one of the tabloid newspapers over the weekend that Brian Close had had some sort of altercation with a spectator at the game. And it's true that there was an exchange of words, but the newspaper as newspapers sometimes do, made it out to be much more than that, that there was some sort of physical coming together. And it's quite clear from talking to the eyewitnesses that that was not the case. But notwithstanding that, and notwithstanding that it was never put to him formally, so he never had a chance to answer the charge, he was effectively dismissed as England captain. And they appointed instead one of their southern gentlemen, Colin Cowdery, to take the side
0: to the West Indies. So following up on that, one thing that struck me in the book, not only with the, the close affair, but, but really throughout the book, is uh, how much attention, fittingly, you devote to the selection of captains and players, and how these these processes of selection uh, are both seemingly connected to larger factors in, in society, but they're also obscure and and even cryptic i was thinking of it this is like kremlinology to see how the selectors work and how they came up with their choices for for captains and and for members of the team so uh, i'll ask you who were the the selectors during this decade and and uh did you get a sense of what was motivating them in their decision because it wasn't entirely as you just said based on on what uh their their performance in playing
1: No indeed and the first thing to note is of course in cricket the captain plays a much more crucial role than in many other sports and therefore the selection of the captain is crucially important because he's in control of the side for the whole day out on the field. Uh, In fairness to the selectors, it has to be said that throughout most of the 1960s, um, they did their job pretty well. Certainly, they cannot be blamed for anything that happened in the close affair. The selectors were normally four former cricketers, very occasionally also current but senior uh, cricketers playing the game. And the captain, once selected, would then join them, so it would become a body of five people. And the tradition was that the captain would always have the last say because he was the one whose performance was going to be judged on how the team did, and therefore that was felt to be the fair thing to do. So the selectors were very much uh, former players.
0: So were you able then to, you had mentioned that the MCC opened its archives and uh, that you did do uh, some interviews, Uh, were you able to gain insight into the, the deliberations that went on among the selectors? Only to a very limited extent.
1: My one real regret about the book was that I wasn't able to persuade Doug Insull, who was the chairman of Selectors for some of these key events, to speak to me. Um, He declined to be interviewed, and the other Selectors of the time, sadly, had all passed away. And much has been made of the fact that the relevant committee book uh, has somehow gone missing in the lord's archives it's no longer available i'm i'm not sure that that's actually as sinister as some of the conspiracy theorists make it out to be i think it's probably inadvertent rather than deliberate mm-hmm. but certainly when we move on to talk about the Dolavira affair i think it is very significant because there were certainly a lot of people present in that process who had no right to be there
0: okay and that was what i was going to talk about next is uh Uh, the selection, or the non-selection, and then uh, selection of Basil de Oliveira. And uh, I'll ask you first, please, to introduce de Oliveira and explain the the background um, uh, of his episode. Yes, Basil de Oliveira
1: was what the South African regime called a cape-colored under the apartheid system, uh, as we know, people were divided basically according to the colour of their skin, and you could be either white, black or coloured, and dolivera was a cape coloured. And the significance of that was that if you were non-white, you were not allowed to represent South Africa at any sport. Indeed, you were not allowed to play sport, even at a regional or a local level, against white teams. So each of the ethnic communities had to play cricket amongst themselves. Basil Oliveira was a very talented cricketer both as a batsman and as a bowler and he came to the attention of various people in England including the legendary journalist John Arlott who was a lifelong opponent of apartheid and Arlott arranged for him to come to England and play professional league cricket and from there he graduated after a few years residence qualification uh, to playing for Worcestershire, one of the English counties. Now, that raised the prospect, of course, that he might one day be selected for England, and that in turn he may also be selected to tour South Africa, which would have created a political furore. And the... South African regime had been becoming increasingly uh, obstinate and isolationist. For example, uh, New Zealand had refused to tour them with their rugby side because they'd been asked for an assurance that they would not pick any moire players, which they refused to give. They'd been banned, I think, from international tennis. Uh, they were about to be banned from international athletics by the International Olympics Committee. And this all came to a head in the summer of 1968, when Dolavira, having first been somewhat mysteriously left out of the England side, despite having been one of its best performers, was brought back for the very last match at the Oval and played a heroic innings, which helped England to win that match. And there's a considerable amount of controversy about what happened next, but it's clear that the selection meeting, which happened that very night after the match ended, did not choose him as part of the team. And reading what various people said about it, uh, it's quite clear that the committee really bent over backwards not to choose him. For example, as I mentioned earlier, he was an all-rounder. He was both a batsman and a bowler. And yet the selection committee agreed to treat him purely as a batsman, which made leaving him out that much easier. And I think they were then very much hoist by their own petard, because what happened was that the man they had chosen to go in his place, a man called Tom Cartwright, was injured, or was injured at the time, to be honest. They selected him knowing that he was injured, but hoping that he would be fit by the time the tour began. Uh, And he then pulled out on the grounds of injury. And so they had no choice but to name Dola as his replacement. And at that time, the South African government came into the open and said that they would not accept a touring party, which included him. And therefore, the tour did not take place. And that was more or less the beginning. There was one more cricket tour by Australia that, uh, I think, the next year. And there were one or two rugby tours, but more or less, that's when South Africa's sporting isolation began. It was a direct result of the Dolavira affair. Mm -hmm.
0: And what did you find in terms of of anything new or surprising on your part uh, in your research into into Dolavira and that, that affair?
1: Well, the one great advantage I had, which previous writers had not, was that Tom Cartwright, who sadly died um, shortly beforehand, left some unpublished memoirs, which somebody then took up and published. And they're very important because his account of various things that happened during the Dolavera affair are directly contradictory of what people like Colin Cowdery said. And it seems very clear now. We know, for example, that the South African government had already approached the MCC and told them right at the beginning of the summer, more or less at the beginning of the summer, that Dola would not be welcome and that various key officials of the MCC chose to keep that secret and not pass it on to the full committee. We also know that a representative of the South African government phoned the chairman of selectors just before that fatal selection meeting to pass on the same message that if Dola was selected, the tour would not be allowed to go ahead. So really, a lot of what was said at the time, particularly unfortunately by Colin Cowdery in his own autobiography, just Mm -hmm. simply doesn't stand the test of time, I'm afraid. Mm
0: So I'll ask why at a time uh, when, as you mentioned, other international sports bodies were isolating the South Africans, uh, why was the MCC still willing to cooperate with with South African cricket? I think there were two reasons. The first is that I think
1: there was an element within the MCC that genuinely thought they were doing what was good for the game. Mm and that, that somehow overrode everything else. And the other thing was that there were very close links indeed, both family uh, and commercial, between uh, the British establishment and South Africa. For example, the chairman at the time of the South African Cricket Board had actually captained England at cricket and was the brother of the president of the MCC. So you don't get much closer than that. So I think there was very much a sense in some quarters that, um, you know, of fellow feeling with the with the South African regime.
0: And at the same time, something that was was striking, you had mentioned at the outset that uh, your view of Colin Cowdery became uh, quite a bit dimmer, probably as a result of this this episode. But it was striking that there were people on the England side who were quite principled and willing to stand up for their principles.
1: Yes, indeed. Tom Cartwright himself would be a good example of that. Uh, He was someone who was uh, a very committed Christian, and he had been to South Africa before uh, for a training assignment and had very much been sickened by what he saw of the apartheid regime. And reading his his memoirs, it's quite clear that uh, he was extremely reluctant to tour there in any event and there were a lot of others as well there were journalists and there was david shepherd i mentioned him earlier who was a former captain of england who would become a clergyman And he was one of the two people, together with Mike Brearley, a future captain of England, who led the protest movement, uh, which convened an emergency meeting of the MCC and tried to pass a vote of no confidence in the committee, uh, which sadly came to nothing. So uh, it it did serve, I think, very much to focus something that was coming to a head in Britain, as in America at the time, that race had become a very fundamental issue that people really needed to to face up to and, and come to terms with.
0: And I want to ask uh, once more about uh, D'Oliveira. You mentioned in the book that he was determined to play for England and to go to South Africa. So uh, can you give us something of a picture of his character? He understood the the historical role he was playing? He absolutely did. Um, And right at the outset, in fairness, we should say
1: he had actually lied about his age when he came to England. So as I say in the book, this is not a simple morality tale of right and wrong, because had the England selectors known his true age, they would almost certainly never have picked him in the first place. But he was very much a man with a mission. He'd grown up under apartheid. He knew what an evil system it was. And he very much wanted to be the person who would go back and force the South African regime uh, to confront apartheid in some way. Um, for example, it would actually have been illegal under South African law for him to have travelled with the England team. He certainly would not have been able to play in the, uh, stay in the same hotels as them. And it would have be also been illegal under South African law for him to play in matches against white players. So it really was a very, very fundamental issue indeed that he was trying to force. And he was absolutely distraught and devastated when the news came through that he'd been left out of the side. I mean, he literally... Uh, had a nervous collapse and had to be taken home, uh, and was only really comforted in the days that followed by the tens of thousands of letters that, that of support that flooded in from from people all over Britain.
0: And I want to ask about that because, as a historian, something that struck me both with the dallavera affair and the Close affair is that uh, you were able to look at some of the letters, at least the letters that the MCC received, and uh, it was it was. Quite striking, the, the public response that these two decisions by, by the selectors uh, in terms of letters uh, stirred up. Yes, and this
1: was very new indeed. Uh, The MCC was not used to having their decisions questioned (laughs) and uh, this is a reaction that comes across, I think, quite strongly in some of the committee minutes at the time. But as far as the people who were writing in were concerned, uh, a lot of them felt very strongly, I think, that the close decision had been motivated on grounds of social class and that the Dolavira decision uh, had been motivated on grounds of race. Um, and it, it was amazing to find those opinions so widespread, because it's only fair to say that in British society at the time, there was equally a great deal of prejudice and, you know, unthinking uh, discrimination, both on uh, social and on racial grounds.
0: Following up on that, then, did the MCC, so they commented on the response they were receiving, did did this response prompt them to rethink uh, the way they made made choices for both the captaincy and the uh, and the team. No, I don't think it did. Um,
1: I, in fact, if anything, uh, there's perhaps a hardening of attitude. I've certainly read all the committee uh, minutes for the few years thereafter. There's no sign, there's no recognition at all that the MCC think they might have got something wrong uh, or even wrongly presented it. I mean, it's fair to say these were in the days before PR, so they didn't have spin doctors to put their case for them. But I think, sadly, it was just that they very much thought that it wasn't for them to justify their decisions to other people.
0: Well, moving on to another topic, something that you mentioned briefly in the book, Guy, is the arrival of players from overseas into county cricket in England. And picking up on that and connecting with the visits by Pakistan in India in 1971, I want to ask, how does this this period fit into the history of cricket in recent decades with, with the shift of the center of gravity to South Asia?
1: Yes, that's a very good point. I think that the power shift to to South East Asia, particularly India, has happened relatively recently. But I think in cricketing terms, that summer of 71 was significant because particularly in the case of Pakistan, I think it was the first signs they gave that they really could become one of the major cricketing teams and challenge people like England and Australia on equal terms. They'd always before had a few very talented players but they'd never really been able to put together a a world-class team at any one time. And this was really the first time that that happened. And I think they gave England a very nasty scare, actually. certainly Pakistan that summer of 71, I think, were unlucky, amongst other things, with the weather. I think that was very much a series uh, which they deserved to win.
0: So another theme you discuss, which is the focus of, of much of the latter half of the book, is aggressive bowling, and you talk about this as a as a dark age for cricket. So I'll ask you here: uh, what brought this change in strategy in bowling? Well, it harked back to the. Bodyline episode uh,
1: in when England visited Australia before the Second World War and they deliberately bowled uh, very short-pitched aggressive deliveries which became known as Bodyline and as a result that was outlawed. What happened really uh, when uh, the England side under Mike Ness went out to Australia? was that, and each side claims inevitably that the other side started it, but the reality of what happened was that the Australians, uh, Lillian Thompson, subjected the English batsmen to a consistent barrage of short-pitch bowling. And I think there are are two important things to note. The first was that whereas body line had been against the spirit of the game, this was actually against the laws of the game. So it was a case of bowlers and their captains effectively daring the umpires to do something about it. And and sadly, the umpires and the administrators were found wanting. But the other very important thing for a modern audience to understand is that this was the days before helmets. So if you were hit on the head by a cricket ball doing 90 miles an hour... Uh, it was entirely possible that you could be killed or seriously injured, as indeed uh, one Indian batsman had been uh, some years previously, Nari Contractor, when he was hit by Charlie Griffith. And in fact, at the end of uh, Ray Illingworth's tour of Australia a few years previously, there'd been a very nasty precursor of this when Peter Lever, an English bowler who ironically hated bowling bouncers, he claimed later he did it because he was told to, bowled a bouncer which hit a New Zealand batsman and actually killed him. Uh, He was resuscitated on the pitch, but his heart had stopped and his skull was fractured. And as I point out in the book, I think there would have been a wonderful opportunity there for the game administrators to draw together and say, look, this has gone far enough, we must stop this. Mm -hmm. But sadly, they didn't. Uh, And what happened the winter after the England tour was that the West Indies toured Australia. They were also subjected to this barrage of aggressive bowling, and they then decided to repeat it for themselves and the rest really is history. As I say in the book, in my view, cricket then entered a dark age, which it inhabited for quite some time, when really the true nature of the game was snuffed out. It was very rare to see spin bowlers. It became commonplace to have a battery of four fast bowlers just bowling short pitch deliveries, and that ushered in helmets uh, and all the rest of it. But the fact remains that I think those people who perpetrated it, particularly the captains, I think, who sort of stood by and dared the umpires to do something about it uh, bear a, a very heavy share of responsibility mm-hmm.
0: yes after reading this i was looking at at clips on youtube and uh one clip in particular brian close batting against michael holding yes. in in 1976 and uh it, you know here on uh in the states you'll often hear baseball fans poo poo cricket mm-hmm. and i would dare any baseball player to to stand in and endure what Brian Close did, to take one, one ball after another. That, that was just brutal to watch. Yes, that clip is quite infamous, and rightly so. Uh, and, of course, what
1: you have to remember is I think the YouTube clip is one over, which is six balls, let's say three or four minutes, and Brian Close actually withstood that for 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got balls coming at you. It was also quite a dark evening. The light was not very good. It was not a very good pitch, so the bounce was unpredictable, and you have about a third of a second from the time the ball leaves the bowler's hand until it arrives at you. So, yes, I think a lot of baseball fans <laughs> should watch that clip if they want to know just how scary cricket can really be. And I think you know anybody watching that clip would would hopefully appreciate my sentiments in the book. Uh, you know, there's there's a phrase that we have over here: "It's not cricket." Okay. And that's, <laughs> that's, I think, a
0: specific example of what it means. Yeah. And yet, in that clip, the umpire warns holding only once. And I'll ask you, why, why didn't umpires intervene? Umpires didn't intervene for the very human reason that they
1: were afraid that the administrators would not support them. And I think, sadly, they were almost certainly right. Right. The administrators had many opportunities over the years to do something about it. But the politics of cricket had moved on. And I think one of the problems had been that previously, England and Australia together had effectively exercised a veto over what happened in world cricket because they both had double voting rights. So if they voted together, they could block everything. But as new countries like Sri Lanka began to be admitted into the test community, it became more and more difficult for England and Australia to control things. And of course, Australia didn't particularly want to ban far sh- uh, aggressive bowling anyway, because
0: they were using it themselves. But I think something could and should have been done. So a uh, number of your chapters deal with the captaincy of Ray Illingworth, uh, leading, leading the England team, and, and something... Uh, that I picked up on that was quite, quite striking is that he skipped an overseas tour uh, one winter because he would have made more money selling fireworks than in captaining the, the English cricket team, which is is amazing to read. So I'll ask you, what was, what was life like for for the players uh, during the, the 60s and 70s? I, I think the short answer is very hard.
1: As I said, they weren't very well paid to start with. And then there was this rampant inflation, which their wages uh, did not keep pace with. See, the idea was, I think, that you were a gentleman, that you didn't need to play cricket, that you had uh, other sources of income, Mm. and that the professionals were regarded very much uh, on the same lines as somebody like a plumber or a bricklayer or somebody like that and and paid a wage that was appropriate to that. But I can remember Tony Gregg saying um, that, for example... Uh, when he captained England in the, the one-off centenary test match in Australia, uh, he bought tickets for four friends to attend the match, and the four tickets cost him more than his match fee. So you certainly didn't play cricket in those days um, to get rich, and I think that was obviously fertile ground
0: which World Series and Kerry Packer found to sow their seeds in. And that's, I was going to ask, you you describe this as, as really the background for Kerry Packer and the, and the founding of World Series cricket. And my take from your book is that Packer found it quite easy then to get players to, uh, to sign on with him. Yes, he did. I mean, he
1: signed up more or less the entire Australian side without any trouble at all. Uh, He signed up a large part of the West Indian side and selected individuals from the English side. It was more difficult in England because the establishment really played quite dirty. They let it be known, for example, that not only would they be looking to ban those people from playing international cricket, they would also try to have them banned from playing any sort of cricket in England at all. And in fact, there was a very famous court case which they lost. Um, but had they not lost it, they would have, they would have been allowed to do that. So fewer England players, I think, signed up for World Series cricket. But again, in a sense, the establishment had only itself to blame because cricketers were not being properly paid. They weren't being paid on anything like the same level as other international sportsmen. And in many cases, by playing even just two or three series, two or three seasons for World Series, they could make as much as they could during an entire career playing, if you like, official cricket. So for a lot of them, I think it was a bit of a no-brainer.
0: And your assessment of of World Series cricket is, is positive? I think, on balance, in
1: retrospect, it is positive. Uh, It was certainly World Series cricket that was largely responsible for making helmets customary in the game. They pioneered the technique of what are called drop-in cricket pitches, which have been of great help in developing cricket in places like the West Indies and in Pakistan. And they brought proper levels of remuneration to professional cricketers. So I think for all sorts of, I, th- I think it's unfortunate that it had to happen. But I think that in retrospect, it was, it was probably overall benign in its effects on the game.
0: And then let me ask you as an expert on business and management, what's your, your assessment of Kerry Packer? I think Kerry Packer was
1: a very shrewd businessman. I mean, he obviously came from, uh, from a media family, from a business family. I think he spotted an opportunity. Um, and I think that the Australian authorities were rather foolish, rather naive in the way in which they tried to deal with him. I mean, he he effectively was making, both in Australia and, and in England, he was making high bids for television rights and yet losing the auction with the highest bid. Uh, and to think that somebody like that would just sit back and do nothing about it, I think, as I say, was, was rather naive. Okay. I, I think he would probably feel that he had very little choice but to do what he did.
0: So, Guy, you had mentioned that one of your, your heroes when you were watching cricket was Colin Cowdery, and yet uh, you you have somewhat of a lower view of him now after researching this book. Is there a, uh, a player from this period who you have a greater esteem for after researching and writing this book?
1: I think railing was
0: definitely... Um, You
1: see, at the time, one was just seeing the, the public version of events, one was watching the cricket, and one was wondering why certain people were selected or not selected. But when you read what was actually going on behind the scenes, I mean, for example, on his tour of Australia, where he recaptured the ashes... He fell out fundamentally with both he and, to be fair, the rest of the side, apart from Colin Cowdery, fell out fundamentally with the tour management. I mean, there was effectively a a mutiny, which was entirely unheard of in English cricket. And to perform as well as he did under those circumstances, um, I think, was was a great testament to him. And I think certainly he lost the captaincy far too early. He lost it for non-cricketing reasons. And I don't think there's any doubt that for at least the next two or three seasons, he would still have been the best person to captain England.
0: So, I gathered from the book that uh, uh, you're not entirely fond of limited overs cricket.
1: I certainly prefer Test and County cricket, oh, okay. yes, that's okay. true to say. And perhaps not a fan of IPL? I'm certainly not a fan of T20. Well, at least, I, I'm not a fan of it as cricket. I think it's a, a marvelous game but i think t- t20 and and cricket are, are rather different things and they should be viewed differently and i think probably they are
0: yeah yeah i i ask this because i know that that this is is not uncommon among among cricket fans when uh, i interviewed gideon hag a few months back he also was was quite explicit in his preference for for test cricket and uh, so i want to ask you looking now at the rise of limited overs cricket and and with constant debate on the future Uh, of Test Cricket. When you look back at this decade of the late 60s, early 70s, do you see this period, do you see the rise of limited overs cricket as being a result of this is what the people wanted? This is what the fans want or the people want brighter cricket, as you say uh, in your book. Or is it a matter of, of the failure of the institutions that governed Test Cricket?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. There's no doubt at all that people wanted brighter cricket. That was entirely understandable. But it's fair to say that today first-class cricket, Test and county cricket, is much more is played much more aggressively and at a much faster pace. It is brighter cricket than it was back in the 1960s and the early 1970s. And there's also no doubt that limited overs cricket brought a huge amount of money into the game, and that that money has been put to good use in developing youth cricket and school cricket and underdeveloped areas. So that's all been to the good but I do think that um, yes part of the imperative for, for limited overs cricket was that sadly uh, first class cricket was not always as exciting as it might have been in fact one of the reviews of my book did actually say that they said something like it was it was a very well written book but I 'd made the cricket seem a lot more exciting than perhaps sometimes <laughs> it was <laughs> which is maybe fair comment and certainly if you look at things like scoring rates and over rates in Test cricket today they are dramatically higher than they were 20 or thirty
0: years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask you, uh, reading your epilogue, it seemed to me that that was something of a preface for, for a next book. Is that? Uh, are you looking to write the next chapter of this history? or? There are thoughts of a sequel,
1: <laughs> yes. There are thoughts of a sequel which would, which would carry the story on perhaps for the next ten years. And uh, I, I have a few ideas about how that might be done. But it would very much require the cooperation of various cricketers who are still very much alive. And that's really what I'm trying to set up at the moment.
0: So I'll ask you, with uh, your requests to get interviews, was it, was it difficult to get former cricketers to talk, or, or were, they, were they eager to talk with you? It was very binary. They either refused point-blank uh,
1: or simply failed to respond, or they were very eager to tell me everything and more. In fact, one of the nice moments was, as Doug Insull was declining very politely to be interviewed, I said, well, you know, I have got Brian Close to speak to me. And he said, how did you get him to stop? <laughs> So, as I said, it's binary. Mm-hmm. They, they were either very eager to talk or very unwilling to talk.
0: And I'll ask you about talking with Brian Close. It would seem that he would be a fascinating uh, figure to talk with because his long career uh, really covered the, 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 the changes in, in the sport going from the days of uh, when the, the professional amateur divide was still, was still in place to into the um, mid-late 70s.
1: Yes, indeed. He's a fascinating character, and it would be, have been wonderful to be able to write a book, a whole book, just about him. And as you say, his career really spanned uh, a very long period of English cricket. And one of the early points in the book is he's actually disciplined by Yorkshire for failing to call an amateur cricketer sir when they were playing in the same match together. So, yeah, very much both the old and the new of Test cricket.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'll ask, so the, the sequel to this book is, is still in the sketch phase. What, uh, what are you writing? Right now, uh, right now, I'm actually writing a
1: detective story, which I'm writing under a nom de plume. And uh, I have a contract that f- for that from a publisher uh, here in England. And I'm also writing uh, a new finance book, which is uh, all to do with investment strategy.
0: Well, Guy, thank you for coming on New Books and Sports. Not at all. Thank you for having me, Bruce. You've been listening to an interview with Guy Fraser-Sampson about his book, Cricket at the Crossroads, Class, Color, and Controversy, from 1967 to 1977. Published in 2011 by Elliot and Thompson. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from science fiction to philosophy. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter, or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.